something that's sweet and has fat in it is tempting because turns out that historically that was associated with nutrients. So we developed a brain that likes fat and sugar, even though in a modern diet, those aren't the, the best staples. The good news is the same way we can learn that eating donuts all day isn't optimal. We can learn that putting our energies into trying to feel good by different kinds of competitive achievements, by different kinds of things to raise our self-esteem actually doesn't work very well, but there are other things we can do that are much more reliable paths to well-being. That was Ron Siegel, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ron Siegel. Ron is an author and assistant professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, where he has taught for over 35 years. He is a longtime student of mindfulness meditation and serves on the board of directors and faculty of the Institute for Meditation and Psychotherapy. He teaches internationally about the application of mindfulness practice in psychotherapy and other fields and maintains a private clinical practice in Lincoln, Massachusetts. Some of the topics we explore include the process behind Dr. Siegel's new book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, the science behind our pursuit of specialness and comparison, how to focus on making connections, not impressions with others, how social media can amplify our suffering, the potential healing power of psychedelic-assisted therapy, the connection between psychopathology and self-preoccupation, and we end by discussing some practical tips to help shift unhelpful evaluative processes that we engage in. Um, Really cool talking to Dr. Siegel. He has such a rich history of mindfulness and meditation, and I love how he brings in his own journey um, and vulnerability to inform his work today and is open about that. And I thought we had a really great conversation, and I love his new book that he sent me and got a chance to read and definitely suggest it if this resonates with you. And uh, thanks for being here and listening to the show. I have some really cool interviews coming up, one special return guest uh, that I'm excited about. And uh, yeah, I can't wait to put those out for everyone. All right. Well, my dog's walking in here. You might hear him. Uh, Why don't we get into the episode with Dr. Ron Siegel. Uh, Dr. Ron Siegel. I'm a clinical psychologist. I'm on the faculty here at Harvard Medical School, where I've taught for um, a very long time, some uh, 35-odd years. Uh, And uh, I also have been really active in introducing mindfulness practices into the psychotherapy field and looking at 
how these ancient wisdom traditions might inform what we do in Western psychotherapy, and conversely, how what we know from clinical neuroscience, from clinical research, from clinical practice, might actually in some ways enrich some of these ancient traditions that the those practices came from. So that that's a, the, I'm also a dad, a husband, uh, um, a friend, and have other life roles, but those are my professional roles. Mm, I love that. Thank you for sharing. And that overlap between Eastern wisdom traditions and Western science and psychology is what I'm really, I'm really interested in that. So I've been extremely excited to talk to you and I love your new book and thank you for sending that over to me. And uh, it was so cool to research you too and see all the um, different books you've written and stuff you've worked on on back pain and uh, mindfulness and psychotherapy. And so I've been really looking forward to this. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me. When reading your book, you you used your own your own experience a little bit. Which uh, actually, would you want to um, share the title of your new book? Sure. So it's called uh, "The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary: uh, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are." And uh, to be perfectly honest, it started as a self treatment project because mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> there I was in my sixties, having spent mm, about four decades uh, either involved in Uh, being the recipient of or doing psychotherapy and about four decades involved in doing mindfulness and compassion practices and, uh, you know, that come from traditions that see as their their goal um, being less self-preoccupied, being less uh, ego-focused and the like. Uh, And you'd think out of all that, I would have developed something like a stable or secure sense of self. (laughs) Um, And uh, it was nowhere to be found. I mean, uh, you know, and, uh, um, you know, I was noticing that after all of this work on myself, after all this clinical experience, my feelings about myself were still going up and down, sometimes several times a day, based on positive feedback or negative feedback that I'd get, based on feeling like I accomplished something or I messed up and I didn't. Uh, and, you know, sometimes there would be broad arcs of several days of feeling relatively good about myself, several days of feeling relatively bad about myself. Sometimes it was changing by the minute or by the hour. But I thought, what's up with this? How come all of this work hasn't yielded some kind of either freedom from this or steady state? And uh, it it inspired me to really uh, do a deep dive into how come this happens? I mean, one of my hypotheses was, oh, it's just me. I'm a failure. You know, I was picked last for kickball in the third grade. I've never gotten over it. And that must be what it's about. But then I thought, you know, all of my clients are struggling with something similar. Um, both clients who are, you know, very well accomplished by most external metrics and clients living very modest uh, lives and uh vocational paths, but they too were going up and down all the time. So I started really looking at what's more universal about this and what can be done about it. And, um, uh, you know, the the really good news is I, I think I found some answers to this. Uh, you know, at one point when I was writing the book, I sent an, I was, this lasted a long time because I kept researching more and more things. And I wrote to my editor and I said, well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is, you know, what I'm working on here, this theme really seems to be working. I'm I'm feeling less self-preoccupied, 
less uh, less less self-focused. Uh, the bad news is I'm going to send you back the advance because who needs to write another book if not to prove themselves? <laughs> and, and and she wrote back to me. You know, she, I mean, I thought she knew my sense of humor, but she wrote back to me saying, "No, no, I think this is a worthy cause. Really, really, let's talk." And I said, "I was kidding, <laughs> but sort of." Yeah. Um, uh, and I, I am glad to have finished the book because I do hope that it can be of use to people. But um, but it has been somewhat helpful. Yes. Uh, to be taking this dive in. And my hope is that the some of what comes of it uh, can be of use to other people who are struggling the way I have lifelong. Yes. this Your book couldn't have come to me at a better time because it overlaps so much with my own personal journey. And so it was really cool to see someone who can articulate these ideas much, uh, uh, much better than I can uh, but it matched a lot of, it resonated a lot with my own experience of so many years of this frantic effort for achievement and um, uh, specialness, if we could call it that. And I even have been using that word before I read your book, like being more comfortable with being ordinary. Uh You can still achieve and you can still work towards things, but there's a different energy to it. There's definitely a different energy to it. And, you know, most of us, or at least what I discovered in myself, and I certainly see it, in my clients and other folks I work with, sort of alternate between feeling not good enough, uh, hmm, didn't do a good job, or not liking ourselves that much, or imagining others judging us negatively, or not living up to some inner standard. It's different. For some of us, it's more outer metrics. For others, it's more you know, am I being a good enough person? Am I being a good enough friend? Am I being a good enough colleague? Uh, But we're either in that state of in some way feeling like somehow we're not making the mark or we're kind of stressed out because we're busy achieving, we're Mm -hmm. busy proving ourselves, we're busy being the very best friend we can be, we're being the very best parent we can be. And I'm not knocking being a good friend or a a good parent, nor am I knocking um, achieving, you know, professionally or in terms of creativity. But when the main... When the main thing that we're focused on is how am I doing here, it has a very, as you just said, it has a very different quality than the other ways that we can engage similarly in a very rich and full life, but where it's not mostly about me and how how am I doing. Yes, there's not as much of an urgency to it, and I always found it left me feeling a little bit hollow whenever you do get the specialness or achievement because you knew the whole behind the scenes workings of like how the flavor of that pursuit. Um, so maybe to lay some groundwork here, would you be able to just share a little bit about maybe what we're talking about? Um, you talk about it in terms of like our like evolutionary biology and mm-hmm. how maybe it's just you t- like uh, you use how diet, like maybe our craving for sugar and carbs are fit a similar analogy. Yeah, to no, dynamic. I- Absolutely. And and I actually find this quite relieving because it helps me to feel like I'm not, maybe I'm not particularly crazy for, for being caught in this stuff. You know, if you, uh, I, I had the privilege of uh, being in one of the game parks in South Africa outside of Kruger National Park um, and riding around with naturalists, you know, looking at all the, the, the magnificent animals and the like. And this pattern shows up. You see, in species after species, there'll be this dominant male surrounded by a reproductively promising group of females, 
And then over in the next field, there'll be another group of usually somewhat younger males doing the species-specific equivalent of playing basketball or football, honing their skills to try to be dominant again, to try to be the dominant one. And then the question is, why? And we know among birds, we use it as a metaphor, pecking orders. We use that phrase for human hierarchies because birds organize themselves into pecking orders. And even some insects, there are species of crickets that if you put them in a box for um, more than a few minutes, they organize themselves into a dominance hierarchy. And children by the age of four will organize themselves into what are known as transitive dominance hierarchies. Uh, transitive is the, the idea of transitivity that you may remember from algebra, that if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C, right? Mm. So if, if uh, Juanita you know, can dominate Charlie and Charlie can dominate Susan, Susan knows that she's got to give deference to Juanita. Mm. And kids know this at a remarkably young age. And adults will organize themselves into these dominance hierarchies. If you just put them in a group, you know, psychologists love to torture people with these studies, okay. right? And even just listening to the sound of the voice of the other group members, people can predict how it's going to shake out. Mm. And so this seems to be very strongly hardwired in us instinctually as humans. And you asked why, or I asked why, and the reason is because it conferred a, a reproductive advantage. You know, the way natural selection works, natural selection isn't concerned with our happiness. It's as though it's concerned I'm being, um, uh, I, I'm sort of uh, giving it a will when it's actually just a, an impersonal process. But the way natural selection works is any mutations, any changes that increase your likelihood of surviving and reproducing and keeping your offspring alive, those are going to show up more in the evolutionary record. And so we might imagine that there were happy hominids uh, millions of years ago who weren't hooked on social comparison, who weren't thinking of how am I doing compared to the others. They were holding hands and singing Kumbaya and being 100% cooperative, but they weren't our ancestors because they didn't get to reproduce quite as much as the ones who were scrambling for position. Mm -hmm. So we developed these brains that are, that are hooked on this. And interestingly, you know, as modern adults, humans, we may not, you know, hit each other physically or uh, take objects from one another without asking, but we have a subtler way of doing this. It's 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 called self-esteem. Mm. You know, we we either feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves in a given moment, based on some criteria. And if we scratch the surface and we realize, okay, well, let's say I think of myself to feel good about myself. I like to feel intelligent. How do I determine I'm intelligent? Well, it's really by comparing myself to others and thinking that some others are less intelligent and I'm in the intelligent group. And the same applies for kind or wise or sexy or thin or fit or um, compassionate or grateful. You know, what I, they can be things we think of as materialist and vacuous. They can be things we think of as high noble values. But we're always evaluating ourselves and we're always comparing ourselves to others. And this... This kind of keeps us trapped in, and it is, it's basically an evolutionary heritage. Now, the really good news is we did have some other instincts also, instincts toward 
nurturing, toward cooperation, toward social connection, toward working together as a group to accomplish goals. And we can harness those instead, but it's going to take effort because what comes easily is this, and just as you were quoting, it's the same way that in virtually every culture, donuts or the culturally, um, uh, the particular cultural equivalent of a donut, something that's sweet and has fat in it, is tempting mm -hmm. and popular because turns out that historically that was associated with nutrients. So we developed a brain that likes fat and sugar, even though obviously in the modern in a modern diet, those aren't the, the best staples. And uh, the good news is the same way we can learn that eating donuts all day isn't optimal, we can learn that putting our energies into trying to feel good by different kinds of competitive achievements, by different kinds of things to raise our self-esteem actually doesn't work very well, but there are other things we can do that are much more reliable paths to well-being. Mm. Very interesting. Yeah. It's like uh, from a young age, everybody fig figures out or the world probably more likely tells them what are your like one or two things for you to be special. And then we work really hard to protect that. And that Absolutely. leads to a lot of potentially damaging or difficult patterns around lying to sort of reinforce it or avoidance to keep ourselves from ways that we might be confronted with not being that certain form of special. Absolutely. Um, I, I, you know, it only takes a few minutes. I have a little exercise from the book that I use to help people identify what their particular things are. Shall we, shall we do that together? Sure. Yeah. Hold on one moment. I have to, I'm going to grab a copy of the book to read. Yeah, no problem. So to, to check this out, just um, yeah. I, I, if you're driving a car or something or jogging, don't close your eyes, obviously. But if you're in a place where you can close your eyes, uh, close your eyes and take a breath or two just to settle in. Because I want uh, to, to have this be most effective. It's, it's useful to notice what we're, what we're feeling inside. And now I'm just going to read a list of different kind of criteria or attributes that other people use sometimes to feel good about themselves or to feel not so good about themselves. And I just invite you to see which, if any, of these ring a bell. What, what, what feels like, oh, yeah, this has been important to me or is important to me. So we'll start with skills and talents. Intelligence. Who's smarter? Am I smart enough? We're closely related. Who's more educated? Am I educated enough? Creative enough? Talented enough? You ever have good or bad feelings about yourself based on your taste, whether you have good taste? Or how you do at sports from third grade kickball on up? Am I a good athlete or others better than me? And then there are all sorts of accomplishments. Who earns more money? Do I earn enough? Am I respected enough? Do others get more respect? If you happen to be a parent, who has the better looking, better behaved, or more successful children? Are my kids doing well enough? If you have a partner, who has the better looking, better behaved, or more successful partner? Is my partner good enough? Am I successful enough at work? 
We also evaluate ourselves based on group membership. Do I come from a good enough family? Did I go to a good enough college? Who has more friends or is more popular? Am I popular enough? Ever have feelings about being part of the in crowd or not? Or who gets more attention? Do I get enough attention? And then there's the feelings we may have about our race, ethnicity, gender, or sexual orientation. Am I proud of those? Ashamed? There's our role in relationships. Am I a good enough friend? Good enough parent? Am I a good enough child to my parents? Am I a good sibling or coworker? Do you ever feel good or bad about yourself based on how you are in your relationships? Or whether you live up to your values? Am I nice enough? Honest enough? As generous as I should be? As caring as I should be? As forgiving? Or am I socially aware enough? Are others more attuned to injustice than me? And of course, physical qualities. Am I attractive enough? Who's thinner? Am I thin enough? Who's taller? Am I tall enough? Am I sexy enough? Do I look young enough? Who's stronger and better shape? Am I fit enough? And among those of us who are invested in spiritual or psychological development, even sillier things show up on the list. Who's more enlightened? Who makes fewer social comparisons, is less driven by ego? Who's less concerned with self-evaluation? Am I too preoccupied with myself? Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things that I find really interesting in this exercise is to just take a moment and call to mind one of the things that rang a bell, you know, where, where yeah, yep, I've got some feelings about that. And either remember or imagine a time where that, that quality was, was validated in some way. If it's intelligent, where I felt smart. If it's looks, where I felt attractive. If it's generosity, where I felt like I was generous. And just, just notice how that feels in the body and maybe even exaggerate it a little bit like that. For me, it's kind of sitting up tall and chest swelling a little bit. And then enjoy that because unfortunately it's not gonna last. Because then I'm going to invite you to remember the opposite, a feeling where mm, you felt like you weren't cutting it in that area. You felt like you were failing or weren't good enough. And kind of exaggerate that body posture and the collapse of that. Ooh, and how that feels. And then you can come back to neutral, and if your eyes have been closed, you're welcome to open them. But just notice how different that good feeling of feeling like, yeah, feeling good about myself is compared to that bad feeling of feeling really not good enough. And one of the things we know in the psychology biz is whenever there's a really strong contrast between something that feels really, really good and something that feels really, really bad, it's, it's an opportunity for addiction. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't have a lot of experience with cocaine, but my understanding is it feels really, really good when people first get high and it feels really, really bad when it wears off. So what happens? Find more cocaine. Well, in the same way, it feels so good to us 
when we have one of these, you know, victories, if you will, and, you know, can wipe out so much pain. Think of a first boyfriend or girlfriend that we really, really liked, and they liked us back. And it's like all the insecurities of life, gone, just gone with this instant success. And that feels so good that we keep, every time we hit a disappointment, every time we hit a bump in the road, we, we're kind of addicted to this. So we look for another, another win, whether it be a like on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or, you know, or just somebody uh, uh, showing interest in us or getting invited to the party. The list goes on and on and on. We look for something to achieve to make the bad feeling go away. And we, and we, so we can all get quite hooked on this. Yes. It's almost like uh, when you're reading all those different ways people can compare thinking it's as if you, know, you go to a party and the biology in us is everybody's going to have one or two or maybe more of those questions that you ask sort of pop up in their consciousness. And if you feed it, where that event ends is you either get it and you get that high feeling, but there's also the kind of like hollowness we described in the beginning, or you don't get it. And then there's that down associated with it. And it makes us want to try to get it even harder at the next one. And I think maybe where your what your book is promoting and the journey I've been on is we can't necessarily control that uh, filter popping up and those thoughts popping up at the start of the party, but we have some agency over whether we feed it or if that's in the driver's seat of how we spend the rest of that hour or two hours. Absolutely. That's, that, that's absolutely it. It's, it's a matter of, of what's our intention going to be. And, uh, Speaking of parties, you know, one really nice shift we can do, this is a very easy way to work with this. It's it's actually uh, one of the uh, book chapters because I, I find it so helpful uh, clinically and personally. What if every time we meet another human being, we focus on making a connection rather than an impression? Yes. Because usually that up and down in the party has to do with making an impression, Right. How am I doing? How do I look compared to these other people? And if we're with people who are high achievers in whatever realm matters to us, you know, it, it could be anything from, uh, you know, being stylishly dressed to being great athletes, you know, to being uh, highly successful in their work. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter what we're hooked on. But if we're with people who are where we're threatened or or trying to prove ourselves, you know, we try to make an impression, right? Yeah, I'm good too. I'm worthy too. And an alternative is, what if we just focused on connecting with these people? Like, hmm, what do we have in common? What's it like to really be who I am as a human being? And maybe talking a bit openly about that and and asking you what your life experience is really like. Because, you know, when when we're with a good friend, that we know well and we have the courage to be really honest with them so that we're not posturing. We're just saying, oh, gosh, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm having a difficult day or, or I'm having a good day, but yesterday was difficult. You know, whenever we're, you know, whenever we're, we're just being honest, in those moments, all these comparative thoughts start to quiet down, right? We're, we're not, we're not, we, and, and in fact, our entire sense of self shifts. It's, it shifts from, me and how's Ron doing or how's Tom doing to us, we become a we. And in that moment, it's like, ah, we can start to relax this stuff because when we're part of a we, 
you know, it just, it just doesn't matter in the same way. Yes. And when we're not and like take the party, for example, what's tough is everybody, most people have this tendency or everybody has this tendency. And at the party, everybody could potentially be playing that game of trying to stand out with their specialness. But what happens is we end up comparing our whole selves that, that knows we're doing this and knows our shortcomings and know we, the thing we did poorly yesterday versus the sort of idealized self that someone else is projecting in the room. And it's Absolutely. not even a fair comparison. Absolutely. Well, and this is, this is so amplified by social media, right? Because in social media, people literally create curated images of themselves. Uh, you know, we don't, we don't see a lot of, uh, a lot of social media posts that say, woke up this morning, anxious, have the runs again, afraid I'm going to get a bad performance review at work, and my girlfriend's going to leave me. It's like, here I am at this fantastic place, doing fantastic things with fantastic people, yes. and you weren't invited. You know, that, you know, it, I, I, um, I've often thought that if we were countries or nation states, it would be as though we're spending the day reading our own crime and poverty statistics yes. and looking at other countries' travel brochures. Because yes. whether at the party or social media, you know, this is, this is what's going on. So we're left feeling, oh, my, how come they can do it and I can't? Yes. Yes. And on both ends, on the, like, being the person that's curating that post, there is a like an emptiness inside of that too. Like when I, even I look back and when I was younger and I was really hooked in this specialness, like how much energy went into capturing the moment in the way you wanted to present yeah. at, at the cost of the richness of the process of the thing. Absolutely. So you can, you can waste an afternoon getting to the perfect spot to take the picture. And for some reason we're sort of hypnotized into thinking that's a worthwhile trade-off. And then the people receiving it aren't seeing that whole hour before of emptiness that led to it. And it's this very Absolutely. kind of corrupt thing on both ends. Yeah, no, it's really problematic. The, um, I, I, I've lifelong traveled a lot and I still do, but the, you know, the number of times that I find myself in some kind of, uh, really moving or unusual place that one might travel to and the percentage of people who seem to be spending most of their energy not taking it in, but looking for the perfect selfie shot. Yeah, uh, that that's that's gotten pretty normative uh, yes. in in a way that uh, I think people are missing out. Yes, and then to go even uh, maybe meta with it in that moment because I recognize that too. Like you were saying in the list of even with spirituality or how you know uh, advanced we are that's a moment where we can get hooked into spending time thinking about how everybody else <laughs> absolutely, is absolutely. doing no. that thing and we're not. And if we don't notice that and pull back and go back to being present, we're playing the same exact game. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's, the, the, this, that's why I find it comforting to think that this is instinctual, that it is so hardwired into our brains to be concerned with social comparison uh, that... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to keep doing it. And part of our job is to catch ourselves in the act. Yes. Uh, and not in a nasty way, not with a nagging finger, but yes. just like, oh, yes, there goes my mind again. Yes. With compassion. There it goes again. With compassion. Like Absolutely. we're giving our younger child when this started a hug and there you are again. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, that, and that it comes naturally to all of us. And then, you know, on top of this, of course, we all have a... Um, since you're a therapist, you'll 
I think particularly resonate to this. We all have extensive, at least small t trauma histories around this. We have long lists of memories of moments where we felt rejected. We got picked last. We, um, uh, uh, you know, somebody paid attention to the other person, not us. We had an older sibling and they and their friends weren't interested in us. I mean, the list is quite long of these moments in which we felt less than mm-hmm. in some way. And because they're painful, we kind of tend to push those experiences out of awareness. Often there's shame around them. We push that out of awareness. But then when we're in a new situation, we're that much more vulnerable because the current disappointment resonates with the memory of the past disappointment yes. and makes it even worse. Um, uh, just to give you a, a sort of personal example, uh, I remember I was, uh, I've had the privilege professionally of speaking at conferences over the years. And I was, I was at one conference and the, you know, often there's a little social event for the speakers. And I was there and, uh, you know, there's hierarchies here, right? There's the people who are super famous with hundreds of thousands of followers. There's the people who are just kind of known on the circuit, et cetera. And so I was in with uh, hanging out with some super well-known people. And it felt to me like they were more interested in speaking with one another than with me. Mm -hmm. And I started, you know, having that sinking feeling. And, you know, and luckily, because I've been sort of training myself in this a little bit, I thought, okay, what does this remind me of? And it was exactly that sibling thing. It reminded me of what it felt like to be a little kid being tolerated by the older kids because they were nice enough and, you know, let me be there. But I wasn't really part of that group. And my efforts to be part, because I was younger and didn't have the vocabulary and the skills, we never quite made it, you know. And, And it was like, oh, so it's all the pain of that is what's getting triggered by this. And that then actually gives us another avenue because it means that we can begin to take every time we have a collapse or even a disappointment as an opportunity. Like, how can I use this to heal the hurts of all the other times where I felt somehow not good enough, where I felt like I wasn't, um, you know, you know, making it. And that's, very, very useful because each time we do that, we drain a little energy from it. We have a little bit more courage to be with it. And then where this eventually evolves to is being relatively fearless because the only thing I have to be afraid of is I'm going to have that collapse feeling again. Yes. Is it pleasant? No. Does it last forever? No. Yes. Is it survivable? Yes. And can I use the collapse to do a little bit of healing? Yes. And and yes, I can do that too. So that that becomes a whole avenue for working with this. As as a, a good friend of mine, he's a, um, uh, a psychiatrist in, in the Boston area uh, named uh, Michael Miller, um, quite accomplished uh, professionally and in other ways. And uh, I don't know if he if he made this up or was quoting it, but he said, "I know many people who have been ruined by success. Not that many who have been ruined by failure." You know, know, actually, these disappointments, if we work with them well, they become they become growth opportunities. Yes, yes. And that's where learning mindfulness and really practicing uh, in the moment. Mindfulness is so helpful because you can get down to the level not to minimize it or um, 
invalidated. But really, you can see these are just sensations. Yeah, absolutely. The, the sensations, like when we just did this little exercise of that kind of collapse sensation, it's just a collapse sensation. Yeah. You know, the other thing that's, that I find so interesting as a, as a psychologist more generally is one of the things that tortures all of us is the fantasy that feelings will last forever. Yes, yes. If I get really anxious or depressed or feel discouraged or feel I failed, somehow, even though my life experiences, they keep changing, good feelings come and go, bad feelings come and go, there's this fantasy that, oh, no, I'll be stuck in this forever, and then that makes me fight and try to push it away. Whereas if I could be a little more realistic and just remember what it's been like in the past, I'd realize, oh, no, this feeling of failure, this feeling of disappointment, it's going to be here for a while. I don't have to scramble to get a high to wipe it out. I don't have to see if somebody's, you know, bought my book or, or posted something on social media. I can just sit with this for a little bit because yes. it's going to change. Yeah. And in that I can, you can kind of, I, I try to use our biology and how healing works in other ways. Like, you know, when you get a cut on your finger, maybe you have to to clean it out a little bit, but then for it to heal, you just have to leave it alone and let it, let it go through a process. And very often when we have sort of, when we have an emotional or mental cut, we, we get hooked into thinking we have to do so much more to let something heal. And that can often get, uh, become problematic in the long term for us. Absolutely. I mean, Michael Mithoffer, who's, um, uh, began his career as an emergency room doc and has, uh, in recent years, been quite active in the development of uh, uh, psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. Oh, so yeah. he teaches how to do this work. And he says, you know, when I was an ER doc and somebody came in with a broken arm, my responsibility was to, you know, line up the bones and cast it. But I wasn't going to heal the bones. I don't know how to do that. All I know how to do is create the conditions yes. by which they will naturally heal. The same thing's absolutely true for us. And part of creating the conditions is deciding instead of scrambling for another self-esteem boost to try to wipe out the bad feeling, what if I just hang with it with a little bit of curiosity and see this as an opportunity? Yes. Because the other thing it's an opportunity for is seeing, okay, so what, what additional criteria for feeling good enough am I hooked on here? Yes. Because like that long list, I, I don't know how many of them you resonated with. I, I, I often do this. Most with of group, them. Yeah, I often, <laughs> thank you. I often do this with group of, groups of psychotherapists. And they say, who resonated to at least one of those? Most of the hands go up. Who resonated to more than one? Most, you know, almost all the hands. Who resonated to almost all of them? And the hands go up. Yeah. And I came up with a list by just examining my own mind yeah. initially. And then I, you know, I was thinking of my clients too. But uh, yeah, you know, there's so, there so many of these criteria and it can be really useful to see Gee, when did I get hooked on each one? Yes. Another little exercise that I like to do that I have in the book is a, uh, uh, is a, called the self-esteem autobiography, which is basically think back to the like earliest memory that you have of either, well, we could start with of um, a boost, you know, earliest memory of something that made you feel kind of good about yourself. And what was that like? And what was that about? And uh, just to give you a personal example, for, for me, it was uh, some memory of being maybe around three and using a big word. And my dad was a teacher and he was impressed. And, 
you know, oh, look at the little kid with the big word. And, you know, I saw him smile and I somehow knew, oh, that made me special in a good yeah. way. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I've been hooked on that ever since. Right. Here, <laughs> here I am in my 60s. I'm still, you know, like, like, you know, trying to show off with a good vocabulary. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. How, yeah. you, you know, so we see how these things start. And then also, you know, what are the earliest memories of a crash? Yeah. For me, it was uh, it was my birthday, and I was either uh, three or four, and my mom sent me into uh, nursery school. That's what we call preschools in the uh, Paleolithic age, and uh, uh, and she sent me in with one of these strings of lollipops, you know, where the cellophane's all connected, so you could have mm-hmm. one for everybody in class. And I showed up ready to celebrate my birthday with my young classmates. And my teacher said, oh, we're a healthy nursery school. We don't serve things like this here. You'll have mm-hmm. to take that back home. And I was, you know, so crestfallen, you know, mm-hmm. and so ashamed to have not known, even as a really little kid. Wow. And we all have, you know, the equivalent of something good, something bad from early on. I mean, some people have had it really rough and don't have any good memories early on. But usually at some point in life, there's some earliest memories of something positive. And then, you know, we can go on through the whole lifespan of, you know, what have we been hooked on at different times to try to feel good about ourselves? And this, this gets very useful because then when, when we have a crash, when it does, things don't work out, we can start to say, oh, yeah, that's that one. Yes. Oh, yeah, that, that's that one. That started around age 12. Yeah, I've yes. been hooked on that since I was 12. And then we start to see that some of them, I'm happy to say, actually do fall away yes. a bit. You know, yeah. like, okay, certain aspects of appearance, I, I can speak as an old guy, you know, you give up at a yeah. certain point, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what are you going to do? Or, or certain feats of athleticism, you give up because, you know, there's no way you're going to lift the weight like you did uh, when you're in your 20s. And, um, and in that process of giving up, there's a fair amount of freedom that comes from it. Yes. So just sort of seeing the role of this throughout our lives is also uh, can be quite liberating. Yeah. You know, it was uh, really interesting you brought up uh, the psychedelic assisted therapy and uh, Michael Midhofer. The, uh, I'm really interested in that, and I didn't do much with it, it was, but during grad school, I actually um, worked with one of the phase three uh, clinical trial groups for MDMA-assisted uh-huh. psychotherapy for trauma. And uh, as um, what made me think of that is sometimes these like stories and ideas that we fuse with about our specialists become so deeply ingrained that we don't even know we're playing in that domain anymore. And I guess what we can just say is like a really rigid ego structure, conceptualized self. And sometimes it it feels with clients and even looking back at my own history, like it's so ingrained that there is not a lot of space in there to untangle that knot. And I think maybe I was wondering what your thoughts were, where maybe the role of psychedelics could be to sort of loosen that knot. And then... oh, uh, you know, uh, let me start with a caveat of I'm not recommending trying this at home. And, you know, this is within the realm of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, which is a very controlled environment where people have thoughtful preparation, a very safe and supportive set and setting, and then thoughtful time to integrate the experience. And within that context, um, we often see exactly what you're talking about. And one of the interesting things, uh, I was just actually interviewing myself. I was in your role with um, Bill Richards, who's one of the wise elders of this field. He's the last Mm -hmm. psychologist to have legally given psilocybin in the 1970s before it was all, all the research was shut down. Wow. And uh, we were talking about 
the remarkably curative part or well there's this strong correlation that keeps coming up in the modern research of to the degree to which a person has had what's called the transpersonal experience or sometimes called the mystical experience which means a sort of re-evaluation not intellectually but viscerally of their sense of self where they feel themselves to be part of all of humanity or mm-hmm. feel themselves to be part of nature and in the process of this the narratives about you know ron smart runs dumb runs you know um attractive runs unattractive all these things suddenly appear completely and utterly ridiculous mm-hmm. they seem like Oh my god, these are socially constructed fictions. This isn't who we are yes. at all. We are part of this web of life which is, you know, and everything that's born dies including this organism and oh my gosh, how have I spent so much of my life preoccupied with this stuff? That spontaneously seems to arise a great deal in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and interestingly to the degree to which that insight arises again not intellectually but felt viscerally people get better yes people who have been depressed suddenly have hope because they realize oh my gosh this is just stories this depression stuff people who have been super anxious they realize this is just stories it's all i've been fighting to preserve symbols yes oh my gosh so absolutely there's a potential here and in many ways i you know what's coming out of the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy world is really both is validating insights that Adox Huxley called the perennial philosophy because they show up year after year and culture after culture of basic this basic insight that to the degree to which we're preoccupied with ourselves and particularly preoccupied with like loosely what's called ego with like hey look at me hey i'm better than you hey i'm special that's the degree to which we suffer yes. and uh and you know in many ways uh, this is going to be a little bit of a bold statement but we could see most of self of, of what we call psychopathology as the result of excessive self preoccupation yeah and cuz all the states you know when i'm really anxious I'll sometimes ask clinicians to think of something that makes you anxious. It doesn't take long. It takes about 2 seconds to come up with something and I say so who among you thought of global climate change? Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's one person or two people, but for most of us no, it's something happening to me, yeah. to my loved ones, yeah. something very close in. It's it's us and sometimes us extends to our immediate you know group or, or or family but you know anxiety is all about that depression is almost always some narrative of i'm never going to find love i'm never going to be good enough nobody's ever going to want me i'll never have a good job it's the word i figures prominently in yes. that in psychosis most people aren't you know when they develop psychotic symptoms it's not usually um you know uh what can i do to make the world a better place today it's either you're persecuting me or i have to do this to you it's very yes. so so and certainly addictions are completely self focused they're about how do i make this unpleasant feeling go away with my addiction of choice so in many ways the shift toward ord- ordinariness which is also a shift toward universality and feeling our connection to the wider world um is uh is an antidote to most everything that distresses us psychologically
Yeah, I would agree with you. And with and with psychedelics, I'd also agree, you know, with therapy is super important. The integration is so important because you actually can run a risk of doubling down on the same problem with oh, a psychedelic experience that then is just like co-opted by your ego to be more special. <laughs> absolutely. Right. And I, yeah, right. I look at me. Um, and I, I worry about this in the underground psychedelic world where while I'm sure that there are some guides who are thoughtful, competent, and have done a lot of work on themselves, you know, if somebody's kind of rattling around in the world and not feeling so good about themselves and not finding a work and love niche that are working well for them, and they have some really transformative experience with psychedelics, it's really easy to set yourself up, <clears throat> excuse me, to set yourself up as a shaman and suddenly go from being lost <clears throat> to being, wow, yeah, the keeper of ancient knowledge. And that's, that's, you know, a lot can go wrong. Yes, because those are extremely <laughs> delicate and important place, places to show up to as a therapist when someone's not in that vulnerable state on psychedelics of just how you show up interpersonally and reinforce or don't reinforce parts of their experience. And then on a psychedelic experience, they're so open. Um, that openness and vulnerability is exactly what can do the healing, but it also can cause a lot of damage if not handled with care. And absolutely. I mean, bad psychotherapy is really is really harmful to people. Bad psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is probably extremely harmful yeah. to people. Yeah, but I'm on the same page as you. I think it's an important part of our future in the Oh, uh, no, absolutely. In, in the and and world. And I was just talking to a um, a psychiatrist in the UK who's done a lot of work with this, named uh, Ben uh, Sessa, and uh, he he used a, a lovely image for the question that you asked before about, you know, might this help us to get out of some of these repetitive uh, cognitive ruts that we're in, these kind of core beliefs? And he said, you know, it's as though what happens. So there's this idea in neuroplasticity that. Uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, mm -hmm. that, you know, if you, you keep thinking a certain thought, that thought gets ingrained and, and becomes the go-to thought. And he was using the idea of, you know, if you're, if people are skiing down a ski slope and everybody's going in one particular uh, route, that quickly becomes a rut. And then anybody else who comes along is likely to fall into the rut. And that's kind of how it works with our thoughts. Our thoughts develop ruts. He's saying that, you know, psychedelics under the right circumstances are like, a thick coat of fresh snow Yes, where you can yeah. go down a lot of different routes now and you, you can try them. And I think one of the biggest shifts is that we can make is the shift from self-preoccupation, self-aggrandizement toward making a connection instead yes. and toward uh, instead of collecting peak experiences, practicing engagement. Um, my friend and who was, my first meditation teacher in a silent retreat, Jack Cornfield. Oh, really? Um, yeah. What an uh, amazing opportunity. I love Jack Cornfield. Yeah, yeah. It was the first year they had opened the Insight Meditation Society. Wow. It was the mid-70s here in Massachusetts. And, and he and Joseph Goldstein were, like, uh, teaching there for the first time. And um, anyway, he wrote a book that I think should win a Pulitzer for the title, which is After the Ecstasy, the Laundry. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, yes. like, you know, what about you know, everyday experiences and what about celebrating the ordinary and how to be more fully engaged in doing the dishes and doing the laundry in taking care of our kid in whatever we're doing, basically 
being more fully present to ordinary stuff is another really good antidote um, to the self-preoccupation because it is in its own right fulfilling, but it's not about being better than or worse than others. Yes, I couldn't agree more. And that's been a big part of my shift is just seeing how much more fulfilling things like walking the dog and noticing which flat, what flowers bloom that totally. day and the, how the breeze feels and just sitting in the backyard that, you know, 10 years ago were just things you would just pass over weren't even important things. It was about right. the next rush. And that shift is just a really yeah. um, beautiful one. And it's very countercultural because, you know, the, the way in which we tend to sell stuff to one another throughout our culture, and we are a very commerce-oriented cultures in, in all Western countries, is um, buy this product or ser- service and you'll get to feel better about yourself. Yeah. Sit in this car and you'll feel like you're a winner in a car. You know, do this trip and you'll feel like you're you're great and you'll be surrounded by beautiful people and you know all this stuff uh i mean like it literally happens like in the since i i tend to travel a bunch now it's post-covid and i'm doing it again you know you know you you line up at the gate in the airport and it's like okay first we'll allow the first class passengers who paid an unbelievable amount for the seat to go on and then okay military personnel to honor their service and people with little kids that can't get into their seats easily but then we start with the executive platinum plus passengers followed by the platinum and then the gold and then the silver and god forbid you should be one of the eight proletariat allowed to slink on the plane yeah. you know at, at the, you know we're selling status we're selling image yeah you know everywhere you know the maitre d at the fancy restaurant you know you know hello mr such and such yes yeah. your table is right yeah. like what's this really all about i'm not knocking good service but yeah. there's a lot you know there's a lot which is you know selling you get to feel good about yourself so it makes us all think that must be the path to well-being and indeed it is in a short run because it's so addictive it feels so good to get one of these positive experiences but it's so unreliable in the long run and I think this deserves mentioning, I didn't mention it earlier, it's unreliable for two reasons. One is what goes up comes down. Yeah. So let's say you're really good at what you do. You're an athlete and you win the gold in the Olympics. Can't get better than that. What are the chances of winning in you know, four years or eight years? You know, Not so great. And the other thing is we keep changing our comparison group. Yeah. Um, I'll often, uh, do this thing, training therapists, uh, you know, most therapists work pretty hard to get a terminal degree, right. That allowed them to practice their craft. And, and when we got those degrees, we felt pretty good. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, this was, this was, this was an accomplishment. A lot of work went into this. And I'll ask people, how many of you woke up this morning feeling really good about yourself because you've got your degree? (laughs) And exactly as you just started laughing, everybody starts laughing, except sometimes there's like one newly minted therapist who starts to tentatively raise their hand and say, why is everybody laughing? (laughs) It's because we habituate to these things. Yeah. And what once floated our boat is no longer sufficient. Yeah. So we need more and more and more just to feel okay about ourselves, you know, and that's true about income, it's true about <laughs> it's true about book writing, it's true about it's true about absolutely everything. Yes. And so maybe to end on a like a help practical, helpful note here before we wrap up, if if somebody resonates with what we're talking about, which is 
probably everybody who listens, right, and wants to start the process of loosening the grip of some of this comparison, where would, what would you suggest for them? Where would they start? Okay, so, so there are a few steps, and these are outlined in the book for people who would like a, a step-by-step guide. Um, it begins really with our mindfulness practice um, and particularly trying to notice every time during the day that we go up or down mm. to really start to be on the lookout. So what are, what are these triggers that make me feel good about myself or bad about ourselves? Because we really want to see just how embroiled we are in this. And, uh, you know, trigger warning, it can be horrifying yeah. <laughs> to, to really start keeping track. You start noticing, oh, my gosh, yeah, sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's, it's quite overt and explicit. But some kind of how am I doing evaluation happens a lot. Yes. So that's useful. Um, another thing that's really useful is to really start to catalog, you know, what are the criteria I'm hooked on? When did I get hooked on them? And why do they matter? Where did I learn that? You know, where, where did that come from? Some of it's instinctual, but some of it is taught by, you know, the parent who divides up the world into the intelligent and the not intelligent. Mine weren't exactly like that, but, but, but there, are, there are some who are like that, for example, or those who divide up the world into the physically attractive or not physically attractive. I've worked with many people where they grew up with that or, and, and on and on. Yeah. So, you know, where to come from and how does it all work? And it can also be helpful to reflect on what's the grading system that we use. Um, is this like a cumulative grade point average since birth? The number of times I've done something intelligent since I was born, and that makes me either intelligent or not? Or is it just like the last year or the last week or since I was adult? An adult is very funny and interesting to see for these different things like Hmm, how long does it last? You know, how long do the accomplishments last? And or is it are constantly up for reevaluation? So that can be helpful. And then it's about putting our energies into the alternatives, particularly this idea of connecting with others. That yeah. that when we make safe social connections, it's it's just such a game changer because we're just not operating on this level anymore. And we get to love and be loved, yeah. which itself is so much more gratifying and so much more enduring as a source of well-being than being a winner in whatever way we define that ever ever could because it's not subject to the same ups and downs yes somebody who loves us can get mad at us and all that but but it's much it's much more sustainable and then engagement you know okay so how do i do whatever i'm doing like now I'm sharing the ideas of the book and you're, you know, conducting a podcast and we want to do what we're doing skillfully, right? Because we want it to be useful to the audience. But can we make that subtle shift of doing it mostly to be useful to people rather than mostly with the idea of people think Ron or Tom are great, right? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. and, and we can do that in every moment. There's, there's, the, there's the opportunity uh, to shift that, and I'll give one more. There's a, there's a, the, the book is a little bit encyclopedic in terms of um, possibilities because it is a hard nut to crack, and it, it's helpful to have a lot of avenues. But another one is just, and this is, you know, this is such a basic go through from the positive psychology field. Look for times to practice gratitude, because yeah. in a moment of gratitude, instead of thinking we need something else to be enough, we're appreciating what we already have. And in a moment of gratitude, we're grateful for or towards something. Gratitude connects us to something. We might be grateful to nature, to God, to our parents, to our friends, to a partner, 
but we're grateful to something or toward something, and that that gives us a sense of connection, mm-hmm. which also is uh, you know so gratitude works works really well um, as, as an antidote. And there are others, but those are those are what I would list as the greatest the greatest hits for go to approaches. Awesome. And anyone listening, I really uh, sincerely recommend the book. Um, it's very well written and easy to read and to follow and to resonate with. And if these things oh, interest you, it'll we can really build on it in the book. So thank you so much for being here. Really. Oh, thank you for inviting me for your interest. Thank you for your honesty. Cause it's like, I've occasionally started talking about these themes and, and have somebody look at me like, Oh, you must really be quite a loser that you feel this way. You know, real winners don't have these insecurities, and that—that's a terrible feeling. So I really, I totally appreciate your your uh, your openness and 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 forthrightness and sharing your experience around this stuff too. Oh, I got it. I know how much of a how difficult it can be feeling stuck in there, and to be on the journey out, I feel like I have to use my experience to support others. We're all in this together, totally, right? Totally, totally. So. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep. When the entire world kept feeding on my grief.